lovers, this is Dr. Candace Nicole with How to Love a Human. You can follow me and the How to Love a Human project on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and HowToLoveAHuman.com, where I welcome your contribution to the conversation. Today, I'm dialoguing with Melanie, and I appreciate all you lovers out there for taking this journey with me to discover how to love a human. Hey, everyone. Today on How to Love a Human, I am with Dr. Melanie Lance. Hey, Mel, how are you? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. I want to start with the non-researchy question first. So are you feeling human or human as fuck? Are you feeling human F? Oh, my God. Um... But I'd have to say, I'd have to say human as fuck. I mean, it has been, like, there's some stuff going on. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some stuff going on. And uh, I've I've had a hard time not feeling human as fuck through this whole process and trying to, like, put my professional face on, you know? Yeah. Uh, so human as fuck. For people who are going to be listening in a few weeks, what's the stuff going on right now? Uh, well, I think the, the breaking point for me, um, so, you know, I'm talking about politically and sociopolitically, uh, DeVos being confirmed as education secretary, mm-hmm. followed by a bill to, you know, just get rid of the Department of Ed, because who needs that? So <laughs> that was, that was the end of it for me, of like, keeping my, keeping my professional face on after that. I was just like, nope, no, it's, it's done. And and the thing is, so why even go through a confirmation hearing if you are going to then dismantle the entire system? Right, right. And, you know, the same thing with the EPA, although who knows if they'll uh, go through with the confirmation hearings for it, but it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's the whole thing. So how do you make the difference between human and human as fuck? Like, how do you know you're feeling one over the other? Um, I think for me, it's when... And I think there is a certain rawness for me mm. to the human as fuck, but there's also a, f- a fight side of that. Mm-hmm. There's the, you know, like, all right, it's on. Like, I guess, I guess we're, you know, we're doing this. I'm going to be, you know, catch me out in the street tomorrow mm-hmm. um, because, you know, something's got to be done. Um, so there's a rawness, there's a fighting, a, a sense of fight to that. Um, but there's also a, uh, it's like every last bit of pretense that I might have been able to muster mm-hmm. is gone. Um, you know, as, as uh, you know, we'll say frustrated as I feel and probably sound right now, I sound and feel just as frustrated when I'm teaching right, right now. Like any, any pretense is just gone. So there's both raw in the sense of like gritty, ready to fight, and also raw in the sense of vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And, uh, um, and in the sense of like having to be really intentional about not going down the what's the point of anything mm-hmm. rather, you know. Mm-hmm. Fighting off hopelessness takes yeah. a lot of energy. Yes, yes. So share with me your most salient identities, the who are you question. My most salient identities. Um, I'd have to say that, you know, of course right now, the, the identities that probably feel most salient to me are, the, are my marginalized identities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is common, but right now especially. So my identity as a, as a cisgender woman, um, which carries both privilege and marginalization. My identity as someone from a lower SES background. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, now being a professor, there's an element of shift to that socioeconomic status. Yeah. But my social class background is still... Um, and always will be lower SES. So that feels salient to me right now. Um, some of my more privileged identities, I think do also feel salient to me right now, just because of everything going on. So, um, you know, my racial identity as a white person feels very salient to me and I feel a sense of responsibility with that. Um, my identity as a U.S. citizen Mm -hmm. feels very salient to me right now. Um, in a, in a very emotional way. Um, not unlike race has fell over the past couple of years, just because of the persecution, um, occurring right now. So those are, I mean, those are the identities that feel most salient to me. So as 
um, a white cisgender woman from a low SES background who is a U.S. citizen, what makes those ones stand out versus others? Like, I'm really curious about the citizenship right now because it is highlighted in some new ways in this current administration. Yeah. Sure. What makes those stand out? Definitely. Um, the, even my identity as a woman historically has not been remotely my most salient, Mm, mm -hmm. salient identity, even going through some of the self-awareness stuff, um, around identity and privilege and oppression. I think gender, um, maybe for some intrapsychically protective reasons, um, had historically not been something I'd thought about as much. And I yeah. think, you know, everything going on, I went to Washington to, for the women's March mm-hmm. and, you know, put my pink cap on and, uh, marched, marched through the streets as much as one could march in a crowd of 500,000. Um, and so just everything going on makes gender even more salient mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you, you said you're particularly interested in the U S citizenship um, peace and just, I'm just hyper aware of my privilege lately. Like I feel a sense of sadness and a sense of heartbreak Mm -hmm. just watching everything that's going on. And I'm aware that even, even just feeling heartbreak, but from a distance is such a privilege because it's not it's not my devastation. They're not coming for me. Right. In this right. Moment. And, you know, so that's salient for me when I'm watching people march in the airports mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm aware that they're doing that because people are being detained yeah. and it's salient for me when some of my own friends, a good handful of my own friends are in the visa process. Mm. And, um, and, don't know what the future holds. And even I'm continuously reminded of my blind spots because I had a friend who, uh, is in our, is, she's a psychologist and she's from mainland China. And uh, I was worried about the visa process for her and everything, but she had even mentioned that, or, you know, our current sitting president specifically hates China. Mm-hmm. So yep. What does that mean for her as compared to someone going through the visa process um, but who's from a country that he doesn't hate right. as much, you right. know? Um, and that was something that I hadn't thought of because it's not, it's not my cultural identity mm-hmm. being separated when he goes on TV, you know? Yeah. Um, and so then when I'm aware of my blind spots, I do even more of that sort of self-awareness work around, you know, what else am I missing? Why did this not occur to me? Um, and so I've been doing an awful lot of that self-exploration, which mm-hmm. just further heightens my awareness of, of my identity as a U.S. citizen and the protection therein. How far back does your work in self-awareness go? Because I find that the field we're in really promotes it, mm-hmm. but K-12 through education largely does not, and many colleges don't even. And I wonder when it started for you that you became someone who could be reflexive? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I think the answer to that depends on how you think about self-awareness mm-hmm. and how, just how metacognitive it has to be before it like sort of qualifies as self-awareness. <laughs> right. I was doing, um, I, I was certainly, I knew I was struggling with something even in high school. And I think it, helps I use that word carefully but Mm -hmm. helps for self-awareness purposes um when you are you know a marginalized person amongst a group of privileged people Mm. so for me you know not only did I come from a lower SES background but I went to a very affluent school district um that was overwhelmingly not diverse in any way uh so there weren't a whole lot of us lower SES uh people there weren't a whole lot of uh racial minority students there weren't a whole lot of non-christian students but we did have a few and we 
like we knew who all those people were, mm-hmm. you know, even at, like my graduating class was probably 700 something. Wow. Uh, it was not a small school. And yet we knew who the other marginalized individuals were, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think it's and- easy to pick it out by race, but how this is something that we don't get a chance to speak to as much class. How do you notice it by class if most people are white? So I get I get the race piece. I not understand that there are some ways that we both have talked about, but just for everybody who might be listening, how, what are those ways you identify a person like this person might have my same class background? What is what do you yes. notice? Um, and it's funny because it's it's like it's instant. You know, there mm-hmm. isn't uh, there isn't much like hmm, I wonder. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, like I see you. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and there's. There's so much, there's so much nuance to it. And yet at the same time, it's, it's just so instantaneous. And, you know, some of it is more easily identifiable, certainly clothes, like, especially in high school. Um, my goodness, you know, like where I went, the teachers were Abercrombie, you know, Mm. so, uh, my original inability to obtain a wardrobe full of Abercrombie, uh, certainly made that, made my social class apparent. And Mm -hmm. then I could see, um, see that in others you know the the clothes that they're wearing and um then some of that even when we could cobble together some money you know there was intentional choice Mm -hmm. that had to do with class so Mm -hmm. you know I would be more likely to shop at Pacific Sunwear Mm -hmm. than Abercrombie um, because there was a certain identity that went along with class or a certain selling out you know if I had gone and used my my part-time job earnings to buy Abercrombie Mm -hmm. yeah um, although I did eventually also try that as part of like, maybe I can fit in. You know? Don't we all try it though? You know, we all try it in a, in a number of ways for survival for sure. But yes. yeah, survival is a huge mm-hmm. part, but I still remember the first day I ever wore an Aeropostale shirt. And, uh, I want to hear that story. <laughs> so I was in, I, I was in, I believe it was seventh grade. I was in geography class. Um, and I always sat behind this girl in geography class who was like just the stereotypical upper middle, upper, upper middle class, um, blonde haired, blue eyed white girl. Um, and she ran with all the other blonde hair, blue eyed, affluent white girls, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was sort of, she was one of those people that was sort of like, that's what it looks like to like have it and make it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it was a very simple thing. I, I think, so this is when I still would have had a paper route, you know, like mm-hmm. that was my, that was my job. That was what I could qualify for at the time. And I bought this, I still have this, which probably says something, but I bought this sleeveless, um, tank top that kind of looked like a varsity type of shirt yeah. from Aeropostal. It, it probably didn't cost, you know, Aeropostal is a little cheaper than Abercrombie, but it was a big deal for me. Um, and I wore it and she turned around, we were sitting in our seats and she turned around and she said, I really like your shirt. And, and I said, thank you. Um, and, and then she actually like spoke to me mm. for a few minutes, which was huge. You know, mm-hmm. I went home like, holy crap, this person spoke to me, but you know, you asked when self-awareness started. And for me, I think it, you know, I could see where it would have been easy to just stay on that high of like, wow, somebody spoke to me, but I had that for like a minute. And then I was like, wait, so when I was wearing clothes from Walmart or even Family Dollar, then I wasn't worth a conversation. Mm. But now that I literally like this is the first brand name shirt I've ever owned and it was the first day I wore it. And now you talk to me. Wow. And so as I, cause I thought about it all day and I remember I went home and I told my dad like, wow, this person spoke to me and, um, and it was really cool. And as I think it was as I was relaying the story to him, I was like, wait. <laughs> you were having that realization as you were relaying it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. How, did your, how did your dad respond to that? Because I think parents give us some indicators about what it means to be who you are, too. That you can take or leave when you're that age. Yeah. I remember he was, um, he was aloof. Mm-hmm. He, he was aloof in character, but, um, he's originally from Appalachia, very poor background, um, uh, union worker till he retired. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was aloof, but he was also irritated. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know, my family's approach to social class I'm aware now is one of like, you know, the fact that I went to grad school was like, you know, getting above my raisins. It was, gotcha. uh, you know, why do you deserve any better than what we had? Which, you know, they think the real message was why isn't what we have good enough. Mm. And that was pervasive in the responses when the, when those types of things would happen or when I would try to use my money to dress nicer or buy things or go places. Um, and so that was probably the first time. And so he was just more aloof and seemed irritated at that time. But, uh, but his, you know, over the years, his responses became more explicit. Yeah. So really there's this question of worth her recognizing you as worthy of conversation, you questioning why what you wore influenced how you were perceived as worthy and even familial like is is what we have and what we provided for you worth something to you yes yeah all of those questions how do you gauge your own sense of self-worth in all of that oh goodness are you asking (laughs) yeah I mean I was I was saying it emphatically but I mean it is a question too yeah how do I gauge my own sense of self-worth I mean that's the that's the rest of the work through adolescence <laughs> um, right. like that that kick started you know as it started to happen that that experience with the Arab stall shirt and others kick started what I recognize now to be as some sort of like existential crisis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that is you know identity development plus you know like the normal adolescent yeah. identity development stuff plus and so myself my me trying to find my self-worth and all that was very externalized, you know? Um, so I went through periods of, and it was, I think almost immediately after that, of like, you know what? Fuck it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want anything to do (laughs) with Mm your Aeropostale or your Abercrombie. (laughs) This was before Hollister. So these were at least before it was popular on the East coast, I guess. So, Mm -hmm. um, those were like the two major ones. Like, you know what? Fuck that shit. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to shop at Pacific Sunwear and I'm going to shop at Army Navy and mm-hmm. get Jinkos and get Jinkos. Wow, you took me back with that. <laughs> you know, wear, wear clothes that that I could parachute in. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrible fashion choices. <laughs> this period of time, uh, uh, not proud. Um, but I'm with you on that. I definitely had a pair, so I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, I do still. I wish I still had my UFOs. Those were at least comfortable. Um, but you know, just trying on all these different hats and first from a place of like, you know what, you reject me while I reject you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of that's identity, but there's also a worth piece in Mm -hmm. that. Um, And then me trying to find crowds that I fit in based on, you know, a new hat that I would wear. And do I do, am I worthy to you all? And indeed the, the people that I started then running with myself were, People who, and you know, once I, I especially once I got to high school, um, and our uh, junior highs were combined, and there were more people. Um, people who would have spoken to me even when I was wearing the family dollar clothes. Yeah. Um, the downside to that is that again, we tended to be for different reasons the more marginalized people, which mm-hmm. meant we were struggling, which meant that there was a lot of um, substance use and things like that yeah. in in that crowd. But the fact that they saw me as worthy, not contingent upon what I was wearing, and that mm-hmm. in fact I could change hats and keep exploring, and you know, so there came a time in probably middle high school where I was wearing more. Um, Abercrombie and things like that and those people still accepted me Mm -hmm. uh, no matter what I wore no matter who I was no matter what mistakes I made and so through trying to find my self-worth and um sort of figure out that for myself from an external standpoint I did eventually find people that reflected that back to me reflected worth back to me um but it was still in a difficult context. And I think that that self-worth thing is something that I continue to struggle with for a long time. Mm-hmm. It comes up and up again at different stages, right? When you meet that next level that you were aspiring to, I don't know if this is your experience, but I've experienced it where it's like, okay, now what is worth mean here to these folks? And what does it mean to me? And how do I maintain what it means to me in this context? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And not only does it continue to come up, but I know, you know, thankfully this morphed into a more helpful thing, but at first I think the not, the not having fully internalized a sense of self-worth for my, like from me to me, Mm -hmm. not other people determining Mm -hmm. my self-worth, um, kept me from even trying to go to that next level. Like, Mm. um, I, I floundered for a while before I decided to go to community college, even though I'd wanted to go to college since I was a little kid, you know? Um, but I, I reached this point, you know, after having high school be the way that it was and being in the crowds that I was in where, you know, college was not really a thing. Mm -hmm. College was for the girl who sat in front of me in geography class, you know, um, that, that trying to negotiate, self-worth unsuccessfully at first was, well, I can't go to college. Mm. That's not something that I can do, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I wouldn't even try to get to the next level at first where I would then have to negotiate what is worth me in in this context and and do I belong here. Um, and it took me a while and, um, a lot of difficult experiences to finally once again say, you know what, fuck it. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is what I've always wanted to do and I'm at least going to try. And then I started to be able to get to that point where I could jump in and then figure out what worth meant to me in this new context. Right. So there was a barrier there and just, I don't want to even take this chance yet, but you, you found that courage to jump and take it a number of times since then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I suppose I have, um, you know, this, and I think this is probably more true to me um, as I gradually found myself. It's, I don't think about it that way at the time. Mm-hmm. Like I muster courage and I'm just going to do it. I just think of it like, F it, this is what I want. Right. You know, this is, this is what I've always wanted to do. And especially since um, there was sort of that lost time, because then I always wanted to go to college. I said in junior high school that I wanted to be a psychologist. I wow. wanted to teach since I was <laughs> in kindergarten. Like, these are things I've wanted literally my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so then just having having had that period of that's not something I could ever do and, and remembering how that felt ever since, it's just been like, again, I feel like the impetus in my life for, for change sometimes, it starts with no fuck that. <laughs> and I don't think about it as courage at mm-hmm. the time. I'm just like, no, fuck it. I'm doing it. Like, this is what I've want, always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Why waste more time? Gotcha. And so you talked about certain identities, wom- womanhood, class, cis, gender, uh, whiteness. I wonder about other identities you might not have mentioned, like religious identity or age or any any of the isms and the identities that might come up for you that didn't get mentioned more immediately. Yeah, sure. Now I'm, I'm doing this sort of reflexive thing with like, why the ones that I didn't mention, why didn't I? <laughs> What what happened there? Um, and I think there are because you some, can't list them all. Some are more salient than others. That's true, but you know, I can I can think about my process and and pinpoint mm-hmm. you know blind spots and motivations or just how easy it is to skip over stuff because you know my immediate thought went to places where I'm more privileged, mm-hmm. like my identity as a heterosexual individual, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of combines with the religious identity here where I am in the deep South Mm. because there's, there's an extra layer of privilege. I think it means something different to be heterosexual and what that privilege looks like here in North Louisiana Mm -hmm. than New York city. Gotcha. Um, it's like privilege squared to be heterosexual and married. Yeah. Heterosexual married means something Um, so different in the South. Wow. It really does. And, um, for us, for me, um, I identify as spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I identify as agnostic or atheist depends on the day that you ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I've done a lot of religious exploration in in my life. There are times that I identify as Christian, went to a Christian church there for a long time. There, you know, I, I would say I'm most closely in line with Buddhism, and I did a lot of um, religious exploration in college and made a minor out of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> minor in religious studies, um, which also led to further self-awareness work as I did um, some work around Islamophobia mm-hmm. from a research mm-hmm. standpoint. Um, it's part of what led me to counseling psychology. But then, and so I think 
there are ways in which my atheist or agnostic identity is a privilege mm. as compared to uh, individuals who identify as Jewish or Muslim, but then certainly Christianity holds the privilege right. um, in our culture and certainly where I live. Um, but one of the one of the other identities that I conveniently skipped over is ability mm. identity, mm-hmm. uh, and it's because I hate talking about it. And I'm, what makes I'm, it tough? Uh, that it's always that it's always in negotiation for me. You know, okay. I am not a fully able-bodied person, mm-hmm. um, and there's a piece of that that's been my whole life. You know, with chronic illness and chronic chronic health problems, um, I have an, I have a primary immunodeficiency, which means that I get sick all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody who's sick looks at me, forget about it, even from a distance. Um, and that's been since I was little, even though we didn't understand why until I was in my thirties. But, um, wow. but the top of it, that has led to a cascade of things that are, you know, getting sick all the time is inconvenient, but you know, now I actually have like mobility problems and, um, you know, things that are, that really challenge my body's abilities, yeah. uh, more than just getting chronic infections. So, and that's, that's a hard thing for me, especially, you know, I'm, I'm an active person. I always say I'm like, I'm like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh <laughs> to the point that it exhausts people. You know, I'm, I bounce around, I run around, I want to climb the mountain. I want to, I, I want to, I miss being able to play softball, those kinds of things. And so it's, it's not a, it's not a small thing for me. Um, not that it, it would be for anyone, but it feels like a real loss. Yeah, it does. And not one that I've taken very well. Um, and especially I'm just, I'd like to believe that I can just keep pushing myself and pushing myself and, you know, work extra hours and do extra things and, and I can do it all and I won't be phased. And, you know, there have been large points in my, large phases of my life where I could do it. And I think that was necessary coming mm-hmm. from my background for survival to mm-hmm. get as far as I've gotten. Um, but I can't quite do that anymore. Like sometimes I just need to sleep and you know, I can't, I can't just say, well, I've got too much stuff to do. No, my body is like, you're going to sleep or you're going to suffer more. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's even been, you're going to take care of yourself or you're going to wind up in the hospital. And I've, I've tested that before and it has not ended well for me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, uh, you know, that, that day to day, like having to pace myself more that, uh, that I, I mean, to be quite honest, I resent mm-hmm. and that's, mm-hmm. that's an ongoing process for me. And it's funny because when people ask me about my identities, I, I will, every time I leave it out and I don't do it consciously, mm. which I think again, speaks to so many things about even, you know, privileged identities and marginalized identities and the, how automatic those processes are. But, um, even though I don't intentionally leave it out, I know that I subconsciously intentionally leave it out, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. And what I you what this brought to mind as you were talking about that is that so they talk of there's research on race tax and the class tax, I think, is oh. additional. So that you uh-huh. had to go so hard and front load it so that you could make it to a point where people got to walk to yeah. it and it's like when does it stop when when can you just rest and not feel guilty or feel like you'll fall 10 steps behind when can you just be and take good care of yourself and let your body do what it needs to do to feel well is does it feel even like a possibility is the resentment from the fact that it doesn't feel likely that it's gonna help you at all yeah, I think I, you know, I still feel like, I still feel like I'm playing catch up. And I think mm-hmm. there are ways that's literally true that I'm still playing catch up as compared to my peers. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked four or five extra jobs during grad school yeah. and that other people weren't doing. And so they were publishing. I was working. Mm-hmm. So there are ways that I'm still always playing catch up. And so I don't have time to sleep. Like that's, that's, I hear you body that like you hurt, but mm-hmm. like we got stuff to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it feels like I'm still taxed in that way. That's like, I, I don't have the luxury mm-hmm. of taking it. Um, and yet at the same time, like, you know, research is consistent with, with my experience, um, that 
we know that people from lower SES backgrounds tend to have chronic health mm-hmm. problems throughout their lives. Um, and that that doesn't resolve even when they gain capital. Mm-hmm. So, and on top of it, you know, you have to figure, and I, and I live this, that in addition to the fact that I carry more chronic health stuff, some, some of which I can directly uh, see the links back to my social class, yeah. but I go to the doctor more, I need more medicine, I need more stuff. So it, my existence costs more money. Mm-hmm because I was poor to begin with. Um, and so, you know, when I'm constantly going to specialists and paying these, you know, they, they always cost more in copays. Mm-hmm. Other people aren't doing that. Um, people from more privileged backgrounds, it's less likely that they're, that they're going to be spending that same kind of money, uh, just to be, just to approach health right. and to, to live. Um, and so that, that's another way that I'm taxed as a result and that I always will be like, that's not going to resolve no matter how much capital I gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the hits that my body has taken are the hits that my body has taken. Um, and you, you can't, you can try to mend from it, but it's never going to fully recover. Right. Um, and so it's, it's always an interesting experience. We'll say, uh, that to see that on paper, that that's what the research says and go, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's actually my life. Yeah, I get that. You see it and it's validating. And at the same time, it's, I don't know about you, but it's just upsetting. And I'm like, yes. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you mean that it's always going to be this way? Mm-hmm. And like, you've researched this, so you know it to be true. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you yeah. want, you want the implications to say, but wait, there's hope. And they yeah. say, well. It's, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So I'm switching gears a little bit. Sure. going to broach the topic of what does love mean to you? Good question. Um, the word that feels like it wants to jump out of my throat is unconditional, un- unconditional, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't mean it's easy, right, right. but, but love, love is unconditional. It is, um, it's powerful. It's deep. It's, it's caring about another human being Mm -hmm. in a way that is just completely selfless. Mm. And I don't know why, but it made me think about the story you told about meeting with your group of friends who felt like the mirror to you, who just accepted you as is in all of your changes and all of the who you wanted to be at different times, that unconditional, we got you. We're, we're here no matter what. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there's, you know, that that's a huge reason why it has worked with my partner. I've mm-hmm. been with my partner since I was 16. Wow. Um, I was 16. He was 19. We got married not all that long after mm-hmm. We've been married for, for a long time. Um, and again, I stress that does not mean that, that it's been easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, God, can you imagine how many changes mm-hmm. that we've each gone through from 16 to or my 31? I think about that for a second. Um, <laughs> but that's, and it's, it's been literally, it'll be half my life this year right. that, uh, that we've been together. And so I am not the same at 31 as I was 16. And, um, you know, I can, I can, say without a doubt that at 19 he didn't sign up to follow me around the country mm. while I do this grad school thing and this faculty thing you know um that that was not uh not a part of the informed consent process <laughs> right at, at 19 years old you know um we were both working very working class jobs uh I had actually dropped out of high school mm-hmm. uh, because I was working so much and I was sick a lot. So like between work, school and being sick, something had to give and yeah. it wasn't going to work or being sick. Um, and so, you know, I don't think any of us could have imagined that our life would look like it does now. Yeah. So, you know, for, it, it was that same thing as, you know, as my friend group at that time of like, all right, this is who you are. This is what you want to do, whether that's a complete wardrobe change or mm-hmm. a complete hair change or a um, complete life change and a career change. Um, 
just that, you know, I'm here for you and I love you. And if this is what you want to do, and I know it stems from who you are, then that's what we're going to do. And so again, it doesn't mean it's been easy, but it's been unconditional. Right. And speak more about the powerful piece. You know, that I think that for one, there's this quality of love that I'm, I'm having difficulty putting into words. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, ephemeral or, um, spiritual in nature, you know, um, a connection with another human being, which can be romantic love, but even for, for my close friends, Mm -hmm. you know, um, just the, the depth of care that I think, uh, that I feel for them. We feel for each other. Um, it has an almost spiritual quality. Like to me, um, being amongst a group of close friends or being with my partner is, um, is just energizing Mm. and rejuvenating Mm -hmm. in a way that's hard to put into words. Um, and that also helps when when we do hit bumps in the road, romantic love or friendships. That um, if it's somebody that I that I don't have love for, like true love, um, then those bumps in the road are harder to endure. Yeah, you know, and it's easier to just let those relationships drift away. But there's a sense for me um, that comes with love of we can get through just about anything, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and it makes even a gigantic bump in the road or a cliff in the road where you just drop off. Um, <laughs> we've had those. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it feel like it makes it feel easier to just shrug it off and go, all right, we'll get through it. Yeah. We've, we've gotten through stuff before. Um, and you know, and I love you and you love me and you know, we're here together and we're going to do this together. Um, and it makes the big and bad stuff feel less big and bad. Mm. And the powerful, the powerful piece stood out to me because I wrote as I was conceptualizing love and sensitizing myself to what love means to me. I said, it is the power and the purpose. It is the energy and the reason. Yeah. I think that's really well put. And so when you have a love a familial love, a romantic love, uh, any kind of love that you might be discussing that helps you feel energized enough to get through something that helps um, support your resilience or is a major part of your resilience and resistance, it really saves lives. It does. And for me, there have been times that I think that's been literal. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, my, he's open about it. My partner struggles with addiction mm-hmm. and is in recovery now. Um, he's been in recovery for, uh, about 18 months. And, um, so there, I think there are ways that for both of us, it's hard for the partner too, um, yeah. that love has been life-saving and at the same time for me with the help stuff, I think, you know, going back to that, that idea of self-worth and the role of my own identities and what that means for love that in that unconditional piece, you know, the hardest thing for me again has been the health stuff and the disability stuff. And despite the fact that he has literally never wavered, even mm. in our hardest times, he's never wavered in, um, in his love for me, despite my health, what yeah. feels to me like despite my health, I still like when I'm really sick or, um, when, when things are really bad, when I need a lot of help, um, when I can't do something, you know, maybe we're out walking and I just can't go any farther. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, to me, it feels, I'm always worried, like, well, this is going to be it, you know, this yeah. is going to be, I'm now too sick. And, you know, who wants to put up with this? Like we're in our thirties. He wants to deal with this till he's 60. Really? Um, despite the fact that he's unwavering about it. But I think that, you know, if I step back to me that, that again, it's that unconditional piece of like, it never occurs to him Mm -hmm. that, that that would be something to do like, Oh, well, you know, you're too sick now, so I'm done. Um, And there have been, there's been twice since we've been together that, um, I had life threatening crises. Mm -hmm. One even ended in emergency surgery. That was not a, not a sure thing, um, me to come out of it. And I think, you know, and 
it was really hard on me, it was really hard on him, but the love that we have for each other could even carry us through that. Wow. Um, and so for me, like when I think of how powerful love is, I think, you know, we, we've been through some hard stuff, but we've been through some life threatening stuff and on more than one occasion. And I think it, it literally helped me pull through. It literally helped me recover. Um, and it, I think helped him cope with the depths of, of what it was that we were facing mm. that sense of like, we're in this together yeah, and, and our love is strong. That is so powerful. You're the second person I've interviewed who's talked about love as life-saving, as literally being on what felt like the deathbed, like yeah. sick, body, open, scarred, surgery, and their partner being really like, I don't know why you're thinking that I won't be here for you, but I'm here. You know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm here. And every time, every time it, it happens, it comes up, mm-hmm. it comes up for me that like, you know, well, of course you're going to flee. Even apparently, you know, 15 years of evidence is not enough for <laughs> me to like get it, you know? Um, it's, it's, at least for me, it must be really core, but again, I'm unflinching mm-hmm. in, in his love for me, despite that. So what I notice is a difference in when I ask people, what does love mean to you? And then I pose the next question. It almost sounds like, a different expectation for how you love versus how you can even conceptualize what the world would be like if it loved you, what the world would be like if it loved heterosexual, cisgendered, white, lower SES background, um, women with ability struggles. Like what would that world look like to you? I do think that, I think the love is similar. It should be similar. I think mm-hmm. the fact that it's not similar is why we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, there's two pieces to this. For one, you know, that unconditional uh, part of love that's missing mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Where does this idea that, you know, my husband who in 15 years hasn't gone anywhere uh, is going to leave me when I get sick enough or it's going to be this time, right? Mm-hmm. That comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I didn't just like read that in a magazine once it comes from this culture of extremely conditional love Mm -hmm. and worth um and some of that's you know materialistic and that's where the social class stuff comes in but it's conditional on race it's conditional on sexuality it's content it's contingent upon um on being gender conforming it's it's love and compassion appear to be so contingent Mm. in our culture. Whereas if it were unconditional and again, unconditional doesn't mean I let you get away with whatever you want. It doesn't mean I think a lot of people make that conflation where they're like, well, unconditional means do all the things that are harmful and you get a pass. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, and it's, it's not, it means that, you know, I can be really pissed at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it means that I can be really disappointed. I can disagree with, with something that you've done, but I still love you mm-hmm. and we're going to figure it out. Right. And so I'm simultaneously allowed to be mad at you and love you. Um, but also communicating that, right. Not just showing that you're pissed, but not showing that, that you still have love. Right. Uh, so unconditional in that way and, and having the compassion that comes along with it. Um, and also not in an identity blind way because, mm-hmm. you know, my going back to the ability, my, my partner certainly doesn't pretend that I'm not sick, right? right? Doesn't pretend that, uh, that the things that, that we've gone through with my health aren't happening. Um, he doesn't ignore them. He, we acknowledge them and he loves me from that place, mm-hmm. you know, of, this is who you are. Um, and other people, you know, my friends, the people who are closest to me, they don't, they don't love me and I don't love them, you know, despite their identities, mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. sexuality, um, social class background. They, we love each other from a place of honoring those identities. And again, unconditionally and with compassion. And 
that's my expectation of interpersonal love, like mm-hmm. on, on a one-to-one basis. But I think also that's that's what love should look like, period. And, mm-hmm. and what the world look like if we could have a, a baseline level of love for one another uh, that is unconditional, compassionate, and not identity blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would look upside down from what we have right now. I think, I think it would, I think it would be hard to even envision because we're so far from that. That's what I keep getting that people are like, I don't even know. Like I need a minute to think about what that world would look like, but using our great therapy skills, if you had a magic wand, (laughs) (laughs) if you could describe it, if you could create it, what would that look like in action and practice and systems, all of that? Yeah. I was, I'm glad you said systems. So I was like, this is going to get political. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to, it, right? Yeah, it has to. It has to. Um, because systems have to take care of us too. And systems are just people. Mm-hmm. They're just groups of people. Um, even a system that you might think of is a corporation. It is a corporation, but the corporation is just an idea. Mm-hmm. It, the actual system is the people. Mm-hmm. And so groups of people have to care about people as well. And the policies have to reflect that. So it would mean that it, what would it look like? There would be far less inequity, far less inequity. Um, there would be no racism and not from, not from an identity blind perspective, but from not from a colorblind perspective, but from an honoring mm. um, every person's heritage and every person's experiences and every person's racial identity and, and allowing people, not putting people in a box ourselves, but allowing people to um, state for themselves what their identity is without people yeah. making assumptions. It would mean that, that we not only um, accept and affirm uh, sexuality beyond just heterosexual mm-hmm. sexuality, but we do it without a second thought. Mm-hmm. It just is. And because love is love mm-hmm. and we treat it as such. Um, and just going down, you know, every, every type of identity, gender identity, um, social class identity, although that would be very different if mm-hmm. that would, that would change the whole social class system. If there yeah. were much less inequity, um, at least over a few generations. Um, but we would, we would just, honor one another and we'd have the systems in place for people who are in need. So we'd have universal health care. That would just be a thing. Like you yeah. need to go to the doctor, just go to the doctor. You don't have to check your bank account first. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do the mental gymnastics of, well, if I go to the doctor, I'm going to need lab work. And if I need lab work, well, it's January or it's February. My deductibles do. Can I afford yeah. that? Um, you just, are you sick? Just go to the doctor because that's what needs to happen for care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't have, you know, everything would just be so different. Our entire judicial system mm. would be different. We wouldn't have the the new Jim Crow mm-hmm. way of of policing and systemically enacting racism, like. Every, everything would be different. Yeah. I, I could go on and on. <laughs> everything would be different. So it would feel different. The systems, which you make a great point, which are made up of people, would enact policy that was evidence of love as opposed yeah. to division or hierarchy or all of the other thing, capitalism, all the other things that our current systems flourish on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because anything... It, it, Universal healthcare is mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. Uh, ha- women having control over their over their own bodies is love. Um, honoring who and how other people love mm-hmm. is love. Not having laws that intentionally hurt entire groups of people mm-hmm. and individuals from entire communities—that's um, love. And you know, allowing people into this country for what we've long touted as the American dream, no matter where they come from, Mm -hmm. that's love. Um, And so I do, I very much see that type of policy as a form of love. Yeah. 
And, and again, that's why I said we're so far from that right now that, yeah, I, I can't, I can imagine, I guess, mm-hmm. what it would like, but I, it would, it would be like a very long fiction novel <laughs> of what that world looks like. What identities and others do you sometimes struggle to love? I was just talking about this yesterday, actually, um, because I, I've, I'm really lucky that a lot of that has come naturally to me, mm-hmm. um, combined with the reflexivity over the years, that most things overwhelmingly are not a struggle, most, and I don't mean things, and most individuals and the identities that they hold, like, I just, I care about people, mm-hmm. and so it comes naturally to me to have love and compassion and not from an identity blind perspective. But, um, just yesterday I was talking about, um, the values conflicts that come up for me around, um, polyamory Mm -hmm. and I am in my value system with relationships while flexible in a lot of ways is very rooted in monogamy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've worked as a therapist with polyamorous individuals. I, I feel like I'm able to do it and be affirming and, and still come from a place of compassion and love, but it takes a lot more mental gymnastics for me. Got it. Got it. I think that's a really important perspective. So it's not that you can't be loving. It's that it, you recognize the additional mental energy it takes to get to that empathic, compassionate place with people that you sometimes struggle to love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's still, it's also rooted in my value system is mm-hmm. the importance of doing that. Yeah. Um, and being really intentional about it because even in places where, you know, I feel like I've, I've done a lot more reflexive work and tried to root out some of those biases to the extent possible, you know, they're, they're still going to be, I'm a product of my culture. Mm -hmm. So my, my autopilot is always going to be at risk coming from a place of not being aware of my own blind spots. Mm -hmm. So like that happens in me with with sexuality a lot. I'm, I, so I'm, because I experienced the privilege of being in a heterosexual relationship, you know, things like holding hands in public, mm-hmm. I take for granted. And it's easy for me to miss or skip over um, how that could be literally dangerous yeah. for friends of mine um, who are in same-sex relationships. And so, you know, I, it's so important to me to already be cognizant and um, be constantly doing that reflexive work and maintain awareness um, and so you know, I'm fortunate that that's, that's just a very ingrained value for me so that I'm very willing to do the work mm-hmm. when, when I encounter a values conflict like that. Um, but it is, it's still, it's still work. It's still exhausting. And I still do that work around like, why is that? Why is it so exhausting mm-hmm. for me? Why is it so much harder for me to be affirming, not just accepting, but affirming, mm-hmm. uh, someone who identifies as polyamorous and as opposed to someone who identifies as monogamous. And it's the choice to do that hard, cognitively engaging work with your privilege that makes a big difference. That doing the work, how you resolve your cognitive dissonance, that the energy that it takes to do that, the conscious choice to use your energy in that way, as opposed to in the millions of other ways you could use it makes a difference. It does. I think that's, you know, I, I really think that's another piece that's missing to me. It just, it, it goes back to that, you know, what is love? And do you approach life from a position of love? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think, I think I do. I think I approach all of life from, from a loving position. Um, and I think, and so for me, that means, you know, doing, doing that reflexive work without even a, without even a second thought, like, Oh, do I really want to do this? You know, it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that that's not the the starting position for mm-hmm. many people that we're not trained to live that way. It, it's not the starting position because we tell people, we, we raise people in this culture to not come from that perspective. Right. Um, 
but if we did, I mean, can you imagine if everybody just came from that position, just woke up every day with that perspective on life and, you know, we encounter someone that we are struggling to love, mm-hmm. it just becomes second nature to, to say, well, why, why is this so hard for me? Yeah. And the last question, what do you love most about you? Oh, I'm going to end with a, gotta end with a big one, huh? Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. Um, love for myself and in the same way that I give it to other people, that's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been, I've been sitting here thinking, oh, unconditionality and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from a, from a place that honors identities and I'm like, that's great for other people, but, uh, but I don't know about turning that inward. Um, that's still an ongoing struggle for me. There are things that I appreciate about myself for sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm ridiculously hardworking mm-hmm. or I wouldn't be here. Um, and, and I do appreciate about myself that I am loving. Um, and I can see the fruits of that. Yeah. Even professionally, you know, as a, as a mentor, um, which helps me appreciate that even more. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that I'm, I can, I've noticed lately that I'm getting closer to a place where I can maybe really love some things about myself. Mm. I don't know. It was like something about turning 31, not 30. But, <laughs> um, that extra one. <laughs> yeah. It's this like switch flip that, uh, you know, I still struggle very much with my weight and body image stuff, mm, but mm-hmm. I just, it's like 31 happened, which wasn't that long ago. And I just started giving less fucks. Yeah. And love is was, about giving less fucks and giving all the fucks at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I just, I'm still not happy at times with my body, but it doesn't, there are many more days that I'm just like, ah, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm comfortable and I'm happy and I'm doing what I love. And, you know, it, this is like, I'm just more comfortable in my own body more days. Um, and I think in general, that is because I'm moving toward a place of unconditional love and from a place being able to honor, or honor, honor my own identities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it is a journeying towards that place rather than any remote sense of, I have arrived at that place. Got it. So even in the 31 year journey there, you don't feel like you're at a place yet where you can say, I love this most about myself. It still feels like there's a ways to go to get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then some of that, some of that feels really identity bound to me too. You know, if I can, to, I was going to say if I can be blunt as if I haven't been blunt. <laughs> um, but, you know, I feel like if I were an upper middle class, heterosexual, cisgender white guy, uh, sitting here having this conversation, it'd be easier for me to be like, I love this about myself and I love this about myself. Mm. Um, and by the way, have I told you about this other thing that I love about myself? Um, <laughs> But, and, and I've, you know, you and I've talked about this, uh, I've, I've been noticing more and other people catching in me more that, you know, from a place of gender identity, I think for me, from a place of social class, um, I just do a lot more second guessing. Yeah. That's just, it's, it's so ingrained in me. Um, and so the idea of loving anything about myself I love this about myself. Um, I still have an aversive reaction to that. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I wish that I didn't. I think that's part of that journeying towards and some of the things that need to be worked through. But no, I'm still not at a point where I can say I love X about myself. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the time you've taken to spend with me to share your story, to tell us who you are, tell us about love. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity and this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. 
to connect and contribute, go to howtolovehuman.com. <laughs>